Good evening and welcome to Pandemics and Public Health Systems in Asia, a La Trobe Asia webinar. I am Beck Striding, the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which La Trobe University sits. I would also like to pay respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to any Indigenous Australians who might be watching this seminar this evening. So part of our role at La Trobe Asia is to engage the public in meaningful discussion and debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the Asian region. The rapid spread of the coronavirus pandemic has been extraordinarily disruptive for Asian states and societies and has dominated our attention for 2020. In particular, the pandemic has focused our collective attention on what it means to build and maintain well-developed and effective public health systems that meet the needs of communities. So how do we align political, economic, environmental, cultural and educational priorities to ensure that primary health care objectives are met? What lessons can Asian states draw from COVID-19 and other pandemics in strengthening their public health systems? And how are pandemics linked with other global challenges? So here with me to answer some of these pressing questions is our expert panel. So first, I would like to introduce Professor Vivian Lin, who is Zooming in from Hong Kong this evening. Vivian is an Executive Associate Dean in the LKS Faculty of Medicine and Professor of Practice in Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. She served at the World Health Organization as Director of Health Systems in the Western Pacific Regional Office from 2013 to 2018 and was formerly Chair of Public Health at La Trobe University. So it's great to have you back at this La Trobe event, Vivian. Great to be back. Our second guest this evening is joining us from Stage 4 Lockdown in Melbourne, and that is Professor George Liu. George is the Director of the China Health Program at La Trobe University and holds a number of honorary professorships at Chinese universities, having originally trained as a public health doctor in China. It's great to have you along tonight, George. Good to be here. Finally, I'd like to welcome our third guest, who is coming in from the Philippines, Dr. Susan Mercado. Susan has had a distinguished career in public health, including working with the World Health Organization in the Western Pacific Regional Office for over 15 years. Susie is currently the Special Envoy of the President for Global Health Initiatives in the Philippines and is the incoming Director for Food Systems and Resilience at the Hawaii Public Health Institute. Welcome. It's great to have you as well, Susie. Thank you very much, Beck, and um, good evening, everyone. There will be an opportunity for some audience Q&A in the second half of this webinar, for which we will be using Slido. So please do go to slido.com and enter the code hash G750, which you can see I've prepared this behind me. You will be able to ask questions, which everyone can see on Slido as the discussion is taking place, and you can vote on questions that other people have asked. And we do encourage you to like questions because the most popular ones, it's a democratic system, the most popular ones get boosted to the top. 
so if you're having difficulties with Slido, though, but, and you would like to ask a question, please feel free to email the Latrobe Asia team at asia at latrobe.edu.au. So let's get into it. Uh, I might start with you first, Vivian, uh, and, and I'm hoping we can have a sort of general discussion to start with about the nature of pandemics. Uh, now, we're very focused for the time being on COVID-19 in particular, but this is not the first and it won't be the last pandemic to sweep across Asia and the globe. Now, a couple of months ago, uh, we had a very interesting conversation where you were explaining to me how pandemics are, by nature are linked with other factors, including environmental factors uh, and even uh, linked with climate change. So I was hoping to start us off that you might be able to explain how pandemics interact with these other global and transnational challenges, including, of course, the environmental problems. Sure, happy to start with that. Um, when we think about COVID, and other emerging infectious diseases, or EIDs as we call them, we know many of them are zoonotic in origin, that is, they're animal to human transmission. So we see that with SARS back in 2003, we've seen that with MERS coronavirus in Korea, but that's also quite endemic in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia in particular. Um, but we also have a history of HIV, Nipah virus, mobilis virus, Lyme disease, monkey forest fever, and so on and so forth. Indeed, at the minute, the Democratic Republic of Congo is having its 11th outbreak of Ebola, and the biggest ever since 1976. So we might be worried about COVID, but there are many other places that need to worry about many things. So why are we seeing this rise, this increase in EIDs over the last 40 years? Well, part of it is we're doing better diagnosis. The science is better. So, you, you know, we can diagnose and label them. But essentially what we see is that we're urbanizing. There's huge population growth. There's mobility, global mobility. That's related to urbanization, industrialization, globalization. So we've got this intense competition for resources. And then we see that land is being, you know, uh, what used to be farming land is becoming urban land. There is deforestation that is happening. So human beings and nature and wildlife are coming into contact, if not conflict, much more than ever before. And, and for our population and food needs, we see much more industrial farming, which also means problems like um, African swine fever may then be exacerbated. Uh, indeed, antimicrobial resistance is another emerging problem. So these are the exact same forces that also sit behind our climate change problem. It's the way we human beings interact with our ecosystem. It's one planet, one ecosystem. We're disrupting it. And in that process, we're seeing EIDs. So in many ways, what we have to think about is 
a one health approach. It's not just human health, it's also animal health. And it comes together and it's ecological health. So just to, to press you a little bit on that, um, when we were talking about um, public health systems and I was learning quite a bit from you uh, in that conversation, you described public health systems as, you know, that they are systematic. They, uh, an effective public health system is one that accounts for all of these various factors that play into, um, you know, how to deliver uh, primary healthcare objectives. So I guess my question to you is, how do you build effective public health systems uh, that can deal with pandemics and what needs to happen to improve responses to pandemics across Asia in, in the development and the maintenance of effective public health systems? Well, I think we could come to this with either, you might want to call three different concepts of public health in the way that people define it, or three different ways we organize public health. So in the first instance, we might think about public health as a set of programs that are very targeted. So it could be about immunization, it could be about communicable disease control, it could be about obesity prevention. We can have highly targeted programs. But these programs nest in a health system. So the way we organize a system, we have to link these population level targeted activities with individually based services. So we can go the whole continuum between prevention to treatment to palliation. And so that would be a second conception of public health, which is not just programmatic, but an organized approach to the way we organize the health sector. But a third, an additional layer I think we have to understand is that health is not just the health sector and programs and services that are provided. It's about the whole gamut of public policies that can help create a healthy environment. So we can call that a whole of government approach. But it's also about a whole of society, and we've really seen this with COVID, that until actually people take control of their behaviors, how they seek care, how they support each other, how they understand um, health, um, it won't work. So it really becomes a whole of society approach. So I think we can go from programs to health systems to a whole of, uh, to a social enterprise approach as the three different ways of thinking about public health. We might dig into the politics of pandemics a, a little bit later, but I might um, turn to uh, Susie. Uh, as the special envoy of the president, you're at the coalface of the Philippines' response uh, to, to COVID-19. Uh, so what have been the key challenges in responding to the pandemic from a public health perspective uh, and from, from your perspective uh, as, as working in this area, dealing with uh, the Philippines' response? Well, I think... There is a disconnect between pandemic preparedness plans and and the actual uh, implementation of a plan. So countries under the leadership of the WHO have elaborate plans of what to do. But once COVID hit the world, then people began to see that, oh, you know, where's the plan? Well, the plan is here. It's It's a piece of paper but it hasn't been converted into, into real, uh, so I'll go into the program services part, sort of like the, the more distal part of it, where the health sector needs to respond. 
these have not been turned into reality unless, unless you have a previous experience. So if I compare, for example, Vietnam or the Republic of Korea with the Philippines or Hong Kong with the Philippines, Hong Kong, Vietnam, Republic of Korea have been hit by, by big outbreaks. And so therefore their preparedness level is different from a country like the Philippines that never got hit by any of this, where we get hit by typhoons. But that's, that's a completely different uh, kind of disaster. I mean, my, my take on this is that this is, in, in fact, a humanitarian disaster. It's a disaster. It's destroyed our ability to respond, to cope. People are now dependent on government, on external support, and so on. Now, just going back to pandemic preparedness. I did a review of um, laboratories because that was the that was the big handicap of the Philippines. When this started, we had to send our tests to Australia and to Japan. Our first few cases of COVID, confirmatory tests had to be sent to Japan and to Australia. We did not have the capability to do the testing. And when I looked into that, I realized that post 9-11, there was what we call a global proliferation of high containment laboratories. Countries all around the world became interested. So now we go to the more larger determinants, became concerned about biological weapons or the weaponization of, of viruses. And from 9-11, from uh, the U.S. built 1,600, had 1,600 biosafety level three Laboratories, Japan had 200, Switzerland had 26, uh, Vietnam had four, Singapore had 13, and the Philippines had one, biosafety level three. Now, in order to test SARS-CoV-2 in the laboratory, you need a biosafety level two laboratory. But you can't have biosafety level two unless you have a lot of biosafety level three laboratories. So, in that race to prepare for the possible for possible biological weaponization of viruses, the Philippines was not involved in that. So we started out with one laboratory that was doing testing, training, and accreditation. So it took a while. It took about four months before the numbers of laboratories could increase. So now we have more than 100. That was done in six months. So it can be done. But it wasn't there when we started. So I think those that have an experience, the countries that had an experience with SARS or with MERS-CoV had a bit of an advantage because they had already started to see, China, for example, already knew that if this happens again, testing laboratories for public health are going to be very important. So the laboratory is just an example. So I would say that uh, now people need to be, countries need to be really serious about pandemic preparedness plans and setting up the infrastructure to implement the plan. That's really interesting how quickly uh, have to mobilize that amount of laboratories over six months. That's a remarkable um, story. I was wondering, you know, to, to expand out to, to the region. Uh, so the Philippines, obviously, there are those, the, the issues around, um, you know, pandemic preparedness. Uh, how have the public health systems across 
Southeast Asia been faring more generally? And uh, what are some of the lessons that these states can draw from um, COVID-19 uh, in, in trying to strengthen their public health systems, but also, as you point out, uh, trying to, uh, I guess, establish a much more prepared state um, for when right. pandemics do hit in the future. Okay, so there is the public health infrastructure preparedness as sort of like a foundation, but the overarching uh, element that enables mobilization is really leadership and good risk communication. And I think in the, in the nations where you have great trust in government and leadership, then you have better participation of people because you don't have a destabilized communication environment. But where you have governments that people don't listen to or don't trust or um, are not able to come up with, uh, what should I say, with risk communication plans that are viable, then the disease goes out of control. So as Vivian says, right, at the end of the day, a lot of this is about people. It's about how they understand disease transmission. It's not about compliance with whether you wear a mask or not, but it's your understanding that if you don't wear a mask, you could get very sick. So. I think when we're looking across the region, and I've been doing some work with Cox Bazar, with Indonesia, and with uh, Pakistan, just through the Red Cross, just having these discussions. Um, um, level of the community, it's very important that leaders understand and can communicate to people what they need to do. It boils down to that, that at those lower settings of workplaces and communities, that leaders understand that it's important for them to lead and to get people to change their behavior towards safety. So I might uh, talk, turn to, to George uh, now uh, to get some of your insights into uh, the initial handling of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic in China. So just to start us off, George, uh, what were some of the initial challenges uh, in, in China uh, trying to deal with the outbreak uh, of, the, of the COVID-19 virus? Um, I like the way Vivian uh, depicts uh, the uh, concept of public health. Indeed, it's a system. And as Susan said, it's not just about the government, it's about the whole society about everybody, including the public, um, the business sector, as well as, uh, of course, health services. So um, in China, they have been an independent or separate public health system um, under the line of uh, the Centers for Disease Prevention and Control. And because China experienced the outbreak of SARS back in 2003, an online reporting system uh, for infectious diseases was established. Uh, however, such a system couldn't pick up new emergency diseases because it was based on a list of uh, notifiable infectious diseases. So the list is limited and that's understandable, but for COVID-19, it's a new disease. At the beginning, nobody knew what it is, so let alone to cap 
to touch all of the data in relation to the uh, COVID-19 cases and let alone to organize uh, a coordinated efforts in the public health system. Um, I have been studying uh, the Chinese healthcare system over the past few decades. And the Chinese system is characterized with hospital dominance, uh, which is quite different from the Australian system where we have to see a general practitioner before being referred to a hospital unless you are suffering a very serious and urgent illness and you need to go to the emergency room. Uh, when we compare Australia with China, China has the same number of hospital beds per capita um, uh, per, per person in comparison with uh, Australia. But we know China has such a high population density. So that means hospitals in China are much, much larger compared to hospitals here in Australia. And those hospitals are well equipped. Uh, I'm not arguing that such a system is cost efficient because uh, as a public health practitioner, we all uh, advocate for a primary care-led or dominated healthcare system. But I know, ironically, uh, in China, because of the well-developed hospital system, they were able to identify new emerging diseases because patients were crowded into the hospital and the hospital could see so many patients, thousands of patients a day, and that increases the chance of um, uh, patients in clusters uh, concentrated in one hospital. And that was exactly what happened in Wuhan, the epicenter of China. Back in December 2019, one tertiary hospital identified about 10 or something around that number of uh, a serious pneumonia, and uh, initially medical doctors suspected they were SARS, but it turned out it wasn't SARS. Um, because it wasn't SARS, it wasn't listed in the uh, public health infectious reporting system. So people got confused and didn't know uh, what to do. Um, but as Susan said, because China developed some high-technology laboratories, uh, over the past few years. So they were able to quickly identify the pathogen of the new pneumonia disease. And eventually, uh, when the pathogen was uh, identified, it was soon put into the notifiable disease uh, reporting system. That's the start when we saw uh, China mobilize the national resources to fight against uh, uh, COVID-19. And uh, data is critical. If you don't have data, you don't know what's going on, let alone how to do with that. So at the beginning, China didn't have the capacity for testing. Um, that's when we saw uh, so many patients uh, were turned away without a confirmation of the final diagnosis because you didn't have the testing capacity of doing so. Uh, at a certain stage, there was some discussion about reclassifying those patients using that, their clinical indication instead of testing. Um, that wasn't a good idea, to be honest, because uh, you, you, you shouldn't put uh, 
patients uh, together without knowing whether they were infectious or not. And, uh, but um, because China did have the capacity in developing uh, testing, uh, testing kits and other public health activities. Uh, so soon after that, uh, China adopted a strategy to uh, treat all of those infectious uh, in hospitals. And, but that's a strategy quite different from what we adopted here in Australia because of the high density, population density in China. So at the point where um, China is able to, to test and to sort of figure out that this isn't SARS, this is a, a new strain or something different from SARS, um, from that point uh, in collecting, being able to collect the data, what other ways did you observe that China's handling of the pandemic improved? Uh, the first thing I would say is that the the Chinese government uh, articulated a very clear goal, eradication from the very beginning. And because they realized that without eradication, there was no way for China to get on top of the virus uh, for many reasons, because of the high population size and uh, high density of uh, housing and many other things. So that, yeah, that, that, that's the most critical uh, decision. And uh, the lockdown of Wuhan played a very important role. Uh, it didn't help Wuhan itself, but the close down of the border helped other regions of China to uh, cope with the spread of the virus, which also gave the other regions the capacity to deploy health workers to support Wuhan. So Wuhan uh, soon established uh, two new hospitals, uh, along with many more, the so-called modular hospitals, to, to be able to um, admit all of those uh, tested positive. Uh, for the serious patients, uh, of course, they were admitted to the real hospitals for the, uh, those with mild uh, symptoms or even no symptoms, they were also uh, admitted into the so-called modular hospitals to prevent for the spread of the virus. So that was the, oh, I think that, that was two key measures adopted in China, but they were also so different from, from the strategies we adopted here in Australia. But I'm happy to say, uh, to see the government now acknowledging the importance of uh, eradication. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, just before we move on to q and I'll remind you uh, that uh, we are using Slido. So please go to slido.com and enter your questions. Uh, the code is behind me, hash G750. Uh, but before we move on to q and I do have a, a couple more questions for our panellists. Uh, Vivian, uh, this one I'm going to direct to you. A virus does not obey national borders. Uh, so how important is cooperation and a united effort between countries in managing pandemics? I think there's a number of areas where we can see international cooperation being successful, as well as perhaps uh, there being room for improvement. I think that the flow of information is absolutely critical. Um, and so we 
need to have the data. We need to know what's happening in different countries. We need to help know how the disease is moving. Um, and with that, the scientific research, we have seen extraordinary um, cooperation across countries among the scientists. And we're still learning a lot about the biology. And this is important, particularly for some of the treatment um, as well as future vaccine development options. But in the first instance, it has been about the way the disease is moving. The second area I think where we need the poorest border is really health workers and supplies. I mean, as the outbreak has occurred um, from one country to another, and it's been a very dynamic process, we see that countries can cooperate by actually taking the experienced workforce that have been successful in, in one country or regions of one, one country to another. So this is another example um, where the porous borders uh, are important, let alone you know, personal protective equipment or masks and um, uh, medicines and other sorts of things. I think the third way in which cooperation is really important is actually learning the lessons from each other. Uh, so what has worked, but what has worked in context, because what works in one place doesn't always work in another place. Um, and what have been the less successful examples is as important a lesson to share. But I think if we take on this question of eradication or elimination, then we actually have to look at simultaneous action. And we're not seeing that. We're seeing one wave after another, one country after another, it's still circulating. And this is where we have to be thinking about more cooperation. Um, because otherwise, we're just, you know, it's a bit too porous. I might bring you in, Susie. Uh, would you agree with that? Uh, more cooperation uh, is, is necessary. How, how do we go about kind of mobilising the international community uh, in an effective way to deal with uh, pandemics? Well, a lot of the effort is local. It's really local. It's really communities. However, when it comes to the technology, the innovations that are happening, I feel that we haven't done that well in terms of saying, you know, what what kind what kinds of uh, testing regimes are are working, you know. And so this is where the learning comes in between countries. So the technology is out there, and there's lots of technology out there, and governments have to choose what they're going to use. And if they're smart, they're going to test, you know, they're going to try it out. But one could actually learn from other countries about what's going well and what's not going well in terms of, of testing, for example. And people, people have instantaneous access to information about what's happening in the rest of the world. But I don't think there's been enough guidance from the scientific community in countries on what are we learning from other countries. I, I, think, I think the World Health Organization could be doing better in that, in that space. Now, the rubber will hit the road when it comes to vaccines. Because once vaccines are available, we can expect great inequity 
I, I do not believe that we are prepared. And maybe that's what, what multilater multilateral organizations need to do. They need to start preparing for reducing the inequities that are going to occur once vaccines become available because the more developed, richer countries will, of course, take care of their people first. So somebody has to start thinking, and I know that there are discussions around that, but the reality is uh, this is moving quickly. And um, unless, unless we have strong international leadership, uh, there could be great inequities created by, I mean, just look at the drugs. The drugs are very expensive. They're about $1,000 per pop. Who can use that in the developing world? So while we're doing all, the, while all of that development is happening, while all that science is advancing, someone needs to be thinking around how does this become accept, how does the best become available to everyone? I think that's where, that's where the problem is going to be. Very interesting. Um, George, I might uh, get your views on this as well. Uh, one area in which international collaboration seems to be very important is the research area, and you've got collaborations with uh, people, particularly in China. So what's your view on the importance of international cooperation? Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, this is a pandemic and it needs global collaboration, and not just in research, but also to share experiences and even share supply and other um, materials. Um, but we see is uh, so many countries uh, uh, focus on the local without uh, learning lessons from others and without sharing, sharing resources and uh, knowledge with others. Uh, that's a pity. And if you look at uh, um, Ebola, for example, not just uh, COVID. COVID is just one disease. As we started with this seminar, it's not the first, it's not to be the last. So we, we just couldn't understand how we learn from the outbreak of Ebola. And uh, it's not just a third world problem, it's uh, the world problem. And we need to work together. And we can see some of the academics are advocating for uh, innovative ways of doing so, like uh, a patent pool or uh, any other uh, new ideas. Uh, but I do agree, uh, the international agencies need to improve their um, ability and their uh, uh, authority uh, to coordinate, uh, coordinate efforts uh, globally, and uh, I can't see any one country can succeed uh, in that ground. Now, I'm hoping uh, that we'll get some more questions in the Q&A box, so please do put your questions in through Slido. Uh, but before we go to q and I do have one final question uh, for the panel, uh, and I'll go around to, to everyone on the panel. But I'm asking you to get out your crystal ball uh, and think about uh, the future um, and uh, Think about what does the future of pandemics look like in Asia? I guess we've had it. We've, we've, we've talked about um, how uh, some states learned the lessons from uh, previous pandemics, particularly SARS. Uh, so, is COVID nineteen uh, likely to actually help states prepare for future pandemics, or are we destined to kind of have the same? Uh, you know, not learning the lessons into the future. I might start with uh, you, Vivian. 
Uh, look, I think that with every single uh, pandemic, there are lessons to be learned. Uh, after SARS, we see, as George talked about, the improvement in the public health surveillance system, uh, which wasn't sufficient this time around, but it was a huge improvement compared with the beginning of SARS. Um, in the same way that the international health regulations were revised after SARS. So I'm sure they will be revised again this time. And I think coming out of this one, we'll see more attention to health literacy in the community level. We might see greater use of uh, telehealth in all different countries. We will see probably better healthcare worker preparedness compared with before. Pandemic plans might broaden. Governments might be more inclined to take expert um, advice. So I think those are some specific lessons. But I'll tell you what worries me. I think what COVID has taught us is the fault lines in every society. And I don't know whether we will be able to address this. Insecure employment, the low income have borne the brunt everywhere. In some countries, and there are several in Asia, we see the problems with migrant hostels, maritime workers, Mm -hmm. uh, Hong Kong, Singapore being two examples of very wealthy places where we're seeing these problems. Um, we like K-pop and Korean Christianity, but we see the churches and the karaoke bars in Korea as also being where some of the, the clusters have emerged. Um, so these are the kind of fault lines. We might be better at addressing them next time. But the problem of discrimination and stigma has been there since the bubonic plague. I mean, if we go back to public health history, has come up with every single one. And so in terms of the vulnerable populations like the aged, the migrants, I am not convinced that we will do better. I like to be optimistic, but I think these are problems. And I also worry that in our more donor-dependent countries, the low and middle income countries, where there's huge need to invest in basic public health infrastructure, whether that's facilities with good in infection prevention and control or public health information systems or primary health care, I worry that donors will just go back to the old normal and say, we're gonna target particular diseases and not invest in preparedness. So a bit of a mixed future there, I think. Um, but Susie, uh, what's your sort of, you, if you gaze into the future, what do you see? Well, I think it's always um, important to have scenarios and to think about the worst possible scenario and the best possible scenario. Um, and in relation to COVID-19 and the pandemic, I think we must consider the virus and how it's evolving and scenarios around that. Uh, and then at the same time, we want to look at um, so three things, the virus. Second, how ordinary people are responding to what we have to do, which is lockdowns. And the third one, of course, is what the scientific community or the health, public health community can do, okay? So 
in a worst case scenario, I think the lockdowns and uh, the restrictions in movement in general create anger and frustration. And that can become, that can turn into something else. Mm -hmm. So people can find any kind of an excuse to be aggressive, to be violent, to be angry, and to express that anger. And that then becomes a bigger problem than the virus. So that's a worst case scenario where you have uh, strife, social conflict, uh, and where, as Vivian says, the cracks show, uh, that, that's, that's about the inequity, that people begin to feel that um, it's not fair, right? It's, there's, the world is not fair, and it's more unfair with COVID-19. So that's a bad scenario where the virus is less of a problem and people's reaction and their political reaction is worse than the pandemic. Now, of course, a better scenario would be, of course, that um, the scientific community is able to come up with better drugs, better testing, and a vaccine. And therefore, instead of talking about eradication or elimination, we talk about better control. So like tuberculosis, you control it. It's not completely gone. It's going to be endemic, probably, but people won't be that afraid of it because they know they can test it quickly, accurately, at a low cost, and that medications are available for those who develop a more, more serious inflammatory disease. And of course, the third scenario, which is what I guess we pray for, is that this virus will mutate into a benign virus. And um, I was just looking at some literature on um, the mutations. Apparently, there are six strains of SARS-CoV-2. And the earlier strain in Wuhan is beginning to disappear. Here in the Philippines, we're documenting a strain that is more infectious, but it's less deadly. So, in going back to Vivian's view on, on the ecological part of it, viruses and human beings are actually symbiotic. Our viruses and animals are symbiotic. They, the viruses have to keep their host alive, otherwise they die. So possibly the virus may evolve into something that is, will give you something like a, a mild flu-like illness, but won't kill you. And so the virus is alive and it's happy because it can reproduce and human beings can go back to their lives. So I think those are, those are my scenarios and that's what I'm always watching out for, right? What's, that, what's new in drugs? What's new in testing? What's new in mutations? And how are people dealing with the emotional impact of having to be restricted from being in control of your life? So those are scenarios, I think. So just before we get to Q&A, I might um, turn to you, George. Uh, what do you think the future looks like? First of all, I think uh, COVID-19 is unique, which brings so many countries in the same uh, status. So unlike uh, SARS, Ebola, and MERS, and other uh, outbreaks, it didn't attract much attention from the wealthy countries. But in this uh, pandemic, every country is in the same boat. 
So that could be a positive side of the story. But I'm also worried about uh, even if we have the scientific capacity to develop vaccines and uh, treatment drugs, and we have to consider how to distribute those uh, technologies and the resources. And uh, yeah, um, both uh, Vivian and uh, Susan mentioned about the inequality and uh, especially those resource poor countries. So we need to pay more attention to them. And it's not just uh, giving them uh, drugs or giving them vaccines, it's a system. And for so many diseases, we do have solutions, but because of the weak system, uh, many of the countries couldn't uh, take advantage of those uh, available uh, resources and technologies. So international assistance should pay increasing attention to system development. Like uh, uh, several years ago, when um, China was still receiving international assistance from uh, the US, UK, and Australia, and so many uh, projects I participated had a strong focus on system development. I think China benefited a lot from that, including in this pandemic. Interesting. Uh, so we do have some questions coming through. So I might uh, turn uh, the first question to Vivian. It's a bit of an international relations question. Uh, so and I, I'm, I'm hopeful that you, you understand uh, what uh, the, the questioner is talking about here, but I'll, I'll just read out uh, the question. I'm enjoying the insights each of the speakers that, that you're offering. Uh, perhaps a provocative question uh, is Australia right to push for an international inquiry into the causes uh, of COVID-19? Uh, so, Vivian, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if you know, but a couple of uh, months ago, Australia unilaterally called for an inquiry uh, into COVID-19 and Beijing's response was um, it wasn't too happy about Australia's call. So uh, is there a tendency uh, for international politics or for states uh, to actually undermine international cooperation in some ways when they're pursuing their national or political interests? Well, look, I think there are several different ways of looking at, at this issue. One is that in many ways, international organizations um, in the UN system, the WHO being the one in this instance, that are kind of the, the geopolitical punching bag. So, um, when there are other geopolitical fights going on, uh, and in the case of a pandemic, you'd expect this. There's, in some ways, nothing particularly new. And remember that these institutions actually grew up during the Cold War. So this is another phase of international geopolitical strife. Um, at the same time, I think it's quite interesting to actually look at what, what is framed for a domestic audience versus how the international system works. I mean, with every pandemic, whether it was SARS or whether it was Ebola, there is a process of review. After Ebola, in fact, there were three very prominent international reviews um, that happened. So having an independent inquiry is actually nothing particularly new. But for a domestic audience, framing it in a particular way within a, both a broader international uh, 
U.S. versus China context, as well as perhaps post-bushfire Australian leadership issues, it looks great. I might ask George to comment on this on, on your perspective, um, George, uh, about um, those calls uh, for a unilateral, that we do essentially unilateral calls for a COVID inquiry from Australia. Uh, as Vivian said, um, it is a scientific issue and uh, it's in the common interest of all of the world to understand how this disease happened and what, can, what we can learn and uh, what we need to do uh, to prepare for the next uh, uh, disease uh, coming through. And uh, actually, before Australia raised this request, and there were lots of discussions in China about how to uh, investigate the, the origin of the disease. Lots of discussions uh, happening around that. So I don't think politicizing this kind of issue will help uh, us to go forward and uh, I think it's, it's basically the context of the timing and uh, how you frame those uh, um, issues that annoy people. I might turn the next question to you Susie, you were talking about sort of um, issues to do with equity in accessing drugs. Um, so this uh, question, uh, has the flurry of advanced purchase agreements rendered the COVAX facility a failure in terms of equitable access to effective vaccines? Uh, so just to sort of broaden that question out, uh, it would be good to hear a little bit more about uh, the kind of how, how can uh, an international system create better opportunities uh, in terms of drug access and, and making them more accessible to more people um, globally? Yeah, that, that's, uh, we expect the multilateral agencies, the United Nations to lead and to make sure that there's equity in terms of access. But the reality is that countries with a lot of money can pre-purchase the drugs even if they're not available yet. So how does one, how does one move, that, move that needle, right, which is here, towards the center. Again, this is about leadership. It's really about leadership. And I think uh, even for the previous question, you know, where there's unilateral, unilateral um, uh, calls for an investigation and so on, points to multilateral failure. So there's got to be a concerted effort, I think, that also comes from the developed countries on equity. Because currently in the developed world, in the world where people can lock down and still have food, uh, they're still not thinking about what's happening to the countries where people lock down and they starve. So there's got to be a movement from among the developed countries to reach out and create global policy that makes the drugs, the medicines, the supplies available to the poorer countries. Because the poorer countries are already experiencing hunger. So 
that's why I say it's a humanitarian disaster. And therefore, uh, we have to be, there's got to be a conscious effort, not just by government, but by agencies, organizations, groups, to advocate for, for equity in the response to COVID. And before we uh, came on live in this webinar, you were saying that one of the, the challenges in, in dealing with pandemics is urbanisation. So I'm wondering whether you could expand a little bit on that issue. Why is you know, urbanisation a particular issue when thinking about public health responses to, to these viruses? Well, urbanisation per se is not a bad thing. It's a good thing to organise cities, but I think it's when urbanization is rapid and unplanned, as we see in many Asian cities, that people live in um, subhuman conditions. They're congested, too many people per square uh, kilometer, square meter of, of homes. And whether that is in urban slums or that is in um, dormitories or... Um, other living conditions. We have to do a better job at creating living conditions that are not conducive to the spread of communicable disease, whether that's COVID or tuberculosis or whatever it is. So one of the lessons that we have to take from this is that good public health means investing in good housing for people. Because if people have no place to live or they're living too close to each other, what kind of social distancing can you do? How can you ask people to wash their hands if there's no what? I mean, they can't afford to buy masks. So, and what's the point in wearing a mask if you're all sleeping together in one room, all 12 of you? I mean, so the, the, uh, the, we, this is an opportunity to rethink the development of urban space. I think what's really coming out strongly from this discussion is how much like, these pandemic issues are really social justice issues as well, uh, issues around things like e equality, human rights and so on. Uh, now, Vivian, uh, you have a, a long history of expertise in Australian uh, public health, so I might send this one to you. Uh, where do you think Australia needs to invest its research in the... Uh, what do you think Australia needs to invest its research in for the future, knowing the Asian experience and where they are now? Well, I think the question of more is partly a matter of what does Australia currently invest in? And therefore, what does it need to do more of? Um, so I think Australia actually has, you know, is part of the, the race for the vaccine development, Australia has always done quite well in terms of investment in medical research, both the biomedical side as well as clinical. Of course, the funding available is nothing like the US and the UK. But like in so many other areas, Australia actually punches above its weight. So then the flip side becomes, what else does Australia need to do? And I think there's a lot more to be lessons. If we're really going to share lessons across countries well, then we have to really look, understand the social and economic context of health, living, working, um, and under what sorts of conditions do we create better health 
under what sorts of conditions do we create factors that damage the health? And then what are the appropriate policy interventions to correct that situation? Because there is both the contextual element that create problems, but then there's also the questions of what are the effective solutions. Now, I actually think that coming through this uh, pandemic, there are lots of interesting examples of how governments have responded. It's the same biology, the science, but governments have done very different things. So what do we learn about governance is I think one really big question, but what underpins governance, the social institutions, the community attitudes, um, the trust in institutions, these are all part of that governance agenda that we need to, to understand better. Um, in the same way that we also need to understand, you know, if trust is important, what creates trust? So there are some more fundamental questions that we could be understanding. But I also think that one of the really interesting things about Australia is that it is a multicultural community. And there are so many different groups in Australia and these groups are linked in the diaspora. So Australia is like the perfect place in so many ways to build that understanding about the different cultures, the different responses, as well as the different kind of links to other countries. And through that understanding, we understand not only how communities uh, create their own solutions, but how globally those solutions go across boundaries and is part of a process of creating world peace. I think we could have a whole other webinar on uh, the governance of pandemics there. There's a lot to sort of pull apart. And I had a lot of other questions that I wanted to ask about the politics of, you know, um, shutting down economies and the, you know, the conspiracy theories that have emerged. But we only have a couple of minutes left. So I'm going to give the final question to you, George. Uh, and it's basically the question that I asked Vivian around what should uh, Australia be investing in? You're uh, working at an Australian university in public health, what would you like to see the Australian government uh, giving money towards? Right, okay. As um, <laughs> I'm working in a university, I'm very concerned about the research funding uh, structure um, for universities. I think the universities here in Australia depend too much on international student fees to subsidise research. And uh, that's not sustainable. And uh, yeah, and the, the other part of issue um, I'm struggling with uh, a proper understanding is that uh, it seems that uh, we, I mean, the, the, the Commonwealth government is uh, focusing too much on commercialization in funding support for research. But if you look at uh, the so-called commercial, uh, commercialization or um, implementation research, those kind of research projects depend heavily on the basic science. So we have to achieve a balance. So I hope uh, we can learn lessons from that. And so many universities are struggling 
uh, risking uh, loss of certain research capacities. And we were lucky in this round, uh, we still have a very strong capacity to develop vaccines, for example, as well as in other uh, science and technology grounds. And uh, I think uh, Australia should um, and should be able to continue to play a big role in science and technology. And uh, but the, but we do need uh, stronger support from the government. And uh, that's also associated with uh, equality issue because if you depend too much on commercial uh, funding, and it will be inevitably biased towards certain areas, and uh, there will never be a balance in uh, science and technology. Well, I think that's uh, all we have time for tonight. I would like to thank our panellists, Vivian, Susie and George. It has been a terrific discussion. I've learned uh, a lot about uh, pandemics and public health and uh, but really enjoyed the discussion around those sort of social justice issues and uh, international, the importance of international cooperation and research uh, and the other sort of issues that we canvassed this evening. Uh, also, thank you to our audience for what Watching this Latrobe Asia event. Uh, this webinar has been recorded. If you have registered for the event, you'll be emailed the appropriate links when they're ready. Uh, our next webinar uh, is next week on the 9th of September, and it is about education and the politics of identity in East Asia today. Uh, and that will be uh, presented in collaboration with Kyushu University in Japan. So please follow us on Twitter. Uh, at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find out more details for our online events and Latrobe Asia publications. Uh, thank you and I hope you have a good night.